Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my Open Air Pulpit. It's been just under two months since I was last up here to do a video. I think last time we got up to Genesis 21, so please open your Bibles to Genesis 22. But before we get to Genesis 22, just a quick uh, thoughts to share with you. Number one, for those that may be interested to know, I'm around 75% through my Cromwell article, and during our time in Cambridge, much to my pleasant surprise, we came across... Cromwell's home and a museum, a free museum that had been opened in his memory. And of course, I shot a lot of photographs <laughs> and shot some video of uh, his home and the museum. So as it currently stands, we are what? July. My goal, Lord willing, will be to complete Cromwell for December's newsletter. And I will share the photographs that I took throughout June and the videos that I was able to shoot also throughout June. So keep me in prayer, 75%. I've still got a bit of a way to go yet. On top of that, I am almost, almost at the halfway mark going through 2 Corinthians. And this coming Sunday, Lord willing, I will continue from chapter 5. And I think it's going to take probably three Sundays to uh, continue and conclude 2 Corinthians chapter 5. On top of that, we, Patrick and I, are going to be returned to the street to do more street work. You can never do enough street work. Like I said so many times over the years, making videos such as this, writing articles like we do, and the radio ministry and everything else is all very well. And yes, it takes a lot of time to prepare for articles and the radio. And you've got to plan ahead like six months, like 12 months. But when it comes to soul winning, when it comes to speaking to people, when it comes to trying to connect with people, you won't match street work. And that's why it was such a blessing to uh, do 10 days in Cambridge with some wonderful Bible-believing Christians. Genesis 22, Genesis 22, look at verse one, if you will, please. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. And he said, behold, here I am. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The term tempt can also mean try. It can also mean trial. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look if you will at verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also excuse me, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So he won't test you, <clears throat> excuse me, he won't try you, <clears throat> go back to Genesis 22, he won't push you above what you can handle. But when it comes to temptation, the Lord doesn't tempt you to sin. He will try you, he will test you. And that's why Paul makes the case very clearly that there's been no trial, no trying, uh, that isn't common to man, and we all get tested and tried concerning our service, concerning our love for the Lord. I mean, the quickest way to test whether your faith is legit or not is whether or not you obey the Lord. What would he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. 22.1 And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt, try, test Abraham. And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. 
Going back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where art thou? The Lord knew where Adam was. The Lord knew where Abraham was. And if you are saved, he knows where you are. Behold, here I am, too. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the Mount of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Take your son, <clears throat> take your only son. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him, God's only begotten son. Until you are born again, you are not a son of God. Back in the Old Testament, angels were referred to as sons of God. But until you are born again, if the truth be known, you are a son of Satan. Take now thy son, thine only son. But what about Ishmael? Isaac, meaning laughter, whom thou lovest. I throw back to, once again, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. You better hear him. And get thee into the land of Moriah, like Calvary, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. You've got many mountains in Scripture. Mount Sinai, Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary. And you've got the Mount of uh, Olives. You've got Christ's teachings upon the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 8. But 20... 2.1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. It's a great picture of a saved man being tested. Two again, and he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, type of Christ, whom thou lovest. Never mind Ishmael, who was also beloved by Abraham. Ishmael wasn't going to be a part of the messianic line, whereas Isaac, meaning laughter, would. Take Isaac, your only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, being Jerusalem, of course, and also in reference to Mount Calvary, where our Saviour died. And offer him, like Isaac, like Jesus, therefore a burnt offering, although Christ wasn't offered up for burnt offering, you understand, upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, whenever I read this piece of scripture, I'm always struck by number one, the Lord's demand on Abraham. He's waited for over 100 years to become a father, to take his son, a son that had been earmarked out for something special, and sacrifice him, which later on would be outlawed. It was an abomination to murder people, and that's one of the reasons why the children of Israel were punished so many times by Jehovah, because they were sacrificing, literally, their sons and their daughters to Moloch, the owl god. And you think of uh, Bohemian Grove in uh, San Francisco in America. They, of course, have their annual get-together. I think it's July, around this time, incidentally. And wicked things take place at Bohemian Grove. But here the Lord is going to tempt Abraham. He's going to test Abraham. Again, not concerning to do wicked. The scripture says that the Lord cannot behold evil. The scripture says that uh, God doesn't tempt you with wickedness, but you are tested when you yield to your old nature. James chapter 1. Take your son, your only son whom you lovest, head up to Mount Moriah, 
the type of Christ on Calvary and offer him there for a burnt offering. And Abraham, like a good Old Testament patriarch, not sinless, of course, nobody is sinless in Scripture apart from the Savior, obeys Jehovah. And like I say, when I think about this account, I'm struck, number one, at what the Lord would demand from his servants. And of course, why would he not demand such from his servants? He would give us his son. In fact, as Jesus was growing up, he would witness the death of Joseph. Joseph would die very young, and that must have been very difficult for Jesus, the oldest or the eldest of uh, Mary's children, to witness his stepfather, who no doubt he loved, die young. In fact, Cromwell would witness his own father die very young. And Cromwell's parents had ten children. Three would die in infancy, and therefore Mrs. Cromwell, who made a good old age, she died at around 89 years of age, would have to raise her seven children all on her own. Poor Oliver, being raised in a home with no father. But the trial has been set for Abraham. Of course, based on foreknowledge, the Lord knew that Abraham could handle this. But if such a test had been offered, or if such a trial had been sent, say, Isaac's way, or Jacob's way, or someone else's way, it may not have resulted in such a great uh, level of uh, trust and sacrifice, which I will call this message, sacrifice. Verse 4, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. You think of John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see this day. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was I am. Every Jew knew what that term I am meant. It was Jesus affirming his deity. Jesus was saying that he was Jehovah. In fact, one of the highlights for me uh, last month in Cambridge was an opportunity that I had to witness to three Jewish men, young Jewish boys. In fact, it started off with six Jews, and they saw our banner, Hebrews um, chapter 8, from memory. I may be wrong when I get that piece of scripture. I may have to correct myself. But these Jews were uh, heading over uh, to our direction, and they saw the banner, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And they came over, of course, Hebrews. What's Hebrews? We are Hebrews. And I said, well, it's a New Testament book. And they said, okay, then. And the banner says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does it mean? And I said, well, Jesus Christ is our high priest. But how can that be, they said? There is no temple. And I said, well, we are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of God. And for around 30 minutes, what started with six Jews coming over, then it was three Jews, resulted in two Jews, a guy called uh, Moses, interestingly, and a guy called Michael. And, and uh, it, was good, it was a good conversation. They were in no hurry to go, and I was able to share three Old Testament passages with these Jews, I'd say in their 20s. Not hostile, no rush to go. A great pleasure for me, a Gentile, who loves the Jews, who loves Israel, to speak to, uh, to two Jewish boys, young Jewish men. And we got some photographs of that account, which we shared in, June, in uh, June's newsletter. So if you want our newsletter, drop us an email, and we will add you to our list. But when it comes to I am, when it comes to the Jews, when it came to Jehovah, they knew what Jesus was speaking about. 
And these Jews from Cambridge last month had some idea what we were talking about. They've heard of Jesus Christ. In fact, I took them to <coughs> Psalm 22. I took them to Zechariah 12. I took them to Isaiah 53. And I read from the King James, of course. And they got their mobile phone out, or one of them did. And he was reading it in Hebrew, which is always a blessing to hear a Jew read the Old Testament in Hebrew. But of course, their translation is different to the King James. I knew that was going to be the case because I've been on this road before with Jews. But it doesn't matter. The Lord can use such a witness, and he did, and turn it into the potential salvation for those two Jewish gentlemen. Because without Jesus, they are just as lost as you are. Just because they are Jews doesn't mean they go to heaven upon death. But I look at this verse from verse 4. Then on the third day, and I think of Christ being raised from the dead on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And I think this. <clears throat> I think that based on John chapter 8, how Abraham saw this day and rejoiced, I think this, that Almighty God, in his glorious majesty, in his wisdom, granted Abraham a vision. Now, I can't prove it from Scripture, so this is just my own private view, take it or leave it. But my belief is this, that around this time, Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, the greatest picture of sacrifice, the greatest picture of obedience to Almighty God. And the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to reward that man. He's already saved. And I gave you these, I gave you the scriptures from some videos ago. He believed and would go on to circumcise his sons and himself, which is a picture of your baptism, which is a picture of James chapter 2, justification in the sight of men. And the Lord said this. He said, I'm going to give this patriarch a blessing. Not only will I spare Isaac, which Abraham around this time didn't yet know, but I will show him my son, who won't be spared. And he got a glimpse, Father Abraham, verse 4, and I get that from John chapter 8. I can't think of any other way to read John 8 concerning Abraham, seeing this day, rejoicing, before Abraham was, I am in the present tense, not I have been which is what the JWs uh, put out in their disgraceful, despicable, blasphemous Bible, like I have been, which means nothing. No, before Abraham was, I am, <coughs> in the present tense. And Abraham was rewarded with a glimpse, with some kind of a vision. Five, and Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. It has been suggested by some uh, Bible expositors that in Abraham's mind, he knew that had Isaac died, had he sacrificed Isaac, which one more time would be outlawed throughout the latter parts of Scripture, that Jehovah could quite easily resurrect him, which of course is true. But at the same time, maybe what Abraham is referring to here is in reference to the sacrifice of Jesus, who wouldn't be spared, who would have to go to hell and back. And I mean literally go to hell and back. It says he went into the lower parts of the earth. It says he set captivity captive. It says he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, imputation. I and the lad, middle part of verse 5, 
will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Demonstrating James chapter 2. Demonstrating one's faith in the sight of others. You could say this. Well, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And you could say that. And I believe he was buried. And I believe after three days, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would raise him from the dead. Like John chapter 2 concerning Jesus. Like Galatians uh, chapter 1 concerning the Father. Like uh, Romans chapter 8, concerning the Holy Spirit. I believe that. But so too does the devil. But here's the thing. The devil isn't trusting in that to save him. It says over in James that the devil believe, that the devils, plural believe, let me correct myself, the devils, demons, the devils believe and tremble. On, on top of that, the devil believes and tremble. Believes and trembles. But the point is this. Yes, they believe what I've just stated, but they're not trusting in that alone to save them. In fact, the Catholic Church believe what I've just said. They believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They believe that Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of the world. They believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and after three days was resurrected. And on top of that, they believe in the bodily assumption of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. But they're not trusting in that alone to save them. That's a the difference, you see. But here's the thing. You say you have faith? Okay, praise the Lord. But until you apply your faith, until you step out of your comfort zone, like Cambridge, for example, your faith is limited. On top of that, until you open your mouth on the streets of, say, Manchester, or Cambridge, or Oxford, people aren't going to even see Jesus Christ within you. That's why, one more time, if you love me, keep my commandments. At the same time, let me say this, that when it comes to works, when it comes to commandments, even that isn't flawless, because if you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, they put everyone else to shame. They spend, on average, 30 hours a week going door to door. In fact, every Saturday afternoon, we do street work, Patrick and I, and it's such a blessing, like I say, <laughs> to do street work. And if you're not doing it, try and do it. And every Saturday afternoon, I come across on my trip to town a group of Jehovah's Witnesses, men and women, young and old, just standing around like this. They don't say gospel tract, sir. They don't say, do you know Jesus, sir? They don't say, repent, madam. They don't say, do you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ? They just stand like this, holding their watchtower. And they do this in Manchester as well. And I've watched such people for years now. They're not saved. And yet, in their minds, they think they are doing Jehovah a great service. In their minds, they would say that they have given up a lot to follow Jehovah. And I'll come to that thought in a moment. But they're not trusting in Jehovah's Son. They're not trusting in Jehovah's righteousness for their salvation. They don't believe in sin like we do. Their greatest fear is to escape Armageddon. Their greatest fear is that Armageddon could start like right now and they're not out and about on the doors. They're not standing on street corners like this. And their greatest fear is that once Armageddon commences and they're not busy, like I say, out and about for their system, that Jehovah will say, unworthy, unworthy. Um, You've disappointed me, you've failed me, 
and they just get destroyed. They don't believe in hell. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Why I stand here, I don't know. I can feel an insect on my right ear. In fact, I did go to another location about 25 minutes ago to make this message from. It was raining. It's been raining all morning. And I got to my backup location. And within five minutes of arriving and getting the camera out and setting it all up, there were two... Uh, excursions to groups of school children. And I've never seen school children at this backup location. And I mean like 35 in one group, 25 in another group. And the noise they were making was so deafening. I thought, I can't stand here. On top of that, I couldn't stand in such an environment and concentrate and do this type of a message. Not just because of the children walking around making a noise, but the flies were back to... <laughs> Try and eat me. But five again. Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. And he would have done it also. He would have done it. Which makes me sometimes examine my faith. I mean, we all say, don't we, those of us which are born again, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure we do. And we all say, those of us which are born again, that we read the scriptures. And I'm sure we do. And we all say, those of us which love the Savior, that we are trying to do something for him. And I'm sure for many of us, we are doing just that. But is your faith really solid? Are you prepared? Or would you be prepared to sacrifice your son? Or your daughter? Or your husband? Or your wife? For Almighty God? It makes you think, doesn't it? Would you be prepared to sacrifice your children for him if he asked you to? And I watch these JWs, like I say, and I know from past experience that if I was to speak to them, and I have done, they would say to me that they've given up many uh, situations. They've paid a huge price to follow Jehovah. In fact, I remember going to Wigan, I think it was, pre-Christmas, and I met this woman. I say she's about 70, and I think I mentioned her in one of my previous videos, but there's more to that story. She told me that she had been a Jehovah's Witness. She told me that her husband was still a Jehovah's Witness. And she told me that they had a daughter, probably my age, I would imagine. And she told me that her daughter shunned her. Her daughter would uh, visit the home of her and her husband, would acknowledge her just about, but she was really going to her parents' home to see her father. He's still in that cult. She's still in that cult. And I felt very grieved for her as she told me this story. And I said to her, well, it's just as well you haven't cut her off, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And she was somewhat taken back by my bluntness. And yes, I know I can be blunt sometimes, but I felt grieved for her because I thought, and I still do, that she's probably saved. She was a very gentle sort of woman, about 70, like I say. Could be a grandmother, I don't know. And yet... She's been shunned. She's paid quite a price because she's now born again. Her husband has remained married to her, which must be torture for her and him. They can't pray together. They can't read the scriptures together. They can't do anything together. In fact, she told me this. She told me that if she was to come across her daughter in Wigan, the chances are her daughter would just walk straight past her because in her daughter's mind, mother might contaminate her. And mother, to her credit, I forget her name, hasn't shut the door on her completely, hasn't completely cut her off. 
And yet, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I think had she decided to do so, she would have been justified. But the point is this, sacrifice. The point is this, what have you given up to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? This woman in Wigan turned her back on the JWs. She'd been with such people for over a decade, maybe 20 years. She's lost friends and family because that's what happens when you leave such an environment. They just cut you off. As far as they are concerned, you may just as well be dead. But when it comes to those of us which are born again, what have we given up to follow the Lamb? Six. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. You think of that term over in Colossians, spiritual circumcision. When you got born again, the Lord performed a supernatural act. He gave you a spiritual circumcision. You can't really comprehend that. Your salvation from beginning to end is supernatural. John chapter 1 says that you didn't will to be saved. You weren't born a saved person. It wasn't something that you decided to do. The source of the new birth from commencement to conclusion comes from Christ. It's a free gift. For by grace, here we go, yes, for by grace, and I have to keep putting this on camera so people don't overlook it. For by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. Not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet you sit down with a JW, they can't explain that verse to you. You sit down with a Mormon, they can't explain that verse to you. You sit down with a Catholic or an average Protestant, they can't explain that verse to you. They have no conception of salvation. They're all trusting in themselves. They're all trusting in their churches. They're all trusting in their works to save them. And yet you are not saved by your works. Your works cannot save you. You were a wretch before you were saved. And even after you are saved, you are still a, you're still a wretch. Oh, wretched man that I am, present tense. Not, oh, wretched man that I was. Oh, wretched man that I am. Romans chapter 7. But verse 6, one more time. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. It's a picture of the cross. It's a picture of how our Savior would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And he took the fire in his hand. In the New Testament, the fire is uh, typified or spiritualized. It's not literal fire when Christ died on the cross. But back in the Old Testament, literal fire was connected to literal sacrifices, but for the new covenant, for Christ's death on a cross, it wasn't literal fire, but spiritual fire. And a knife, picturing your spiritual circumcision, and they went both of them together. Abraham and Isaac. Nobody has forced this incident to take place. Abraham loved the Lord. Abraham was going to be a great man. In fact, the Muslims think the world of Abraham. Jews think the world of Abraham. Christians think the world of Abraham. And yet we don't trust in Abraham to save us. We look back to the Old Testament and we can appreciate what Abraham, meaning the father of many nations, would do and is about to do. But again, had this been sent Isaac's way, had this been sent Jacob's way, the Results may have been very different. In fact, it's quite likely that Isaac and Jacob would have failed. 
but based on foreknowledge, based on the Lord's understanding of all things, the beginning from the end, he knew that this would result in something remarkable. Verse 7, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I my son. You can't miss it, can you? My father and I are one. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Middle part of verse 7. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. Picture of the cross, Calvary, Moriah. But where is the lamb? For a burnt offering. John chapter 1. Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. All of your past, present, and future sins. And I put this question to our Jewish friends in Cambridge last month, and I said, so what has Jehovah done for you? I mean, concerning the atonement. You have no temple, you have no animal sacrificial system, you have no priest system. What had he done for you? What guarantee has he given you that your sins are forgiven? They couldn't answer that. And I said to them, so let me understand this. You still follow the Torah, the Old Testament? They said they did. And I said to them, have you ever broken the Ten Commandments? And they were a little bit sketchy on that. And I said, uh, never. And they said, no. And I said, uh, never taken God's name in vain? Oh, no, never done that. And I said, uh, so would you call him Jehovah? And the guy said, never. Would you call him uh, Adonai? And the guy said, uh, only once the Sabbath, or Sabbat as they call it, has finished. Very interesting conversation. And yes, we have some audio of that witness, which I may have to put online and share with you all. But the point I was trying to make was this. Number one, they have broken the Ten Commandments, which they would later admit. Number two, based on their own view, because they have rejected the New Covenant, Jehovah hasn't guaranteed their salvation. Also, I put the question to them, what about Jews that break the Sabbath? Do you put them to death? Oh, no, we can't do that. We haven't got the authority. And I said, yes, you have got the authority from Moses. You see, you have rejected the New Testament. You have rejected the New Covenant. So technically, you are still back under the Old Covenant. Technically, you have to execute Sabbath breakers. What about Jews that practice uh, witchcraft? Suffer not a witch to live? Do you put such a person to death? And they thought that was very funny. And they said, well, we don't know many Jews that practice witchcraft, but the point... I was trying to make one more time, was that it's found in Scripture. It is a commandment concerning wayward Jews. What about Jews that are homosexual? Don't tell me there are no homosexual Jews around the world. Do you put those people to death? And they said, no, absolutely not. And I said, my point is this. I'm not saying you should. I am not saying you should. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that they should put anyone to death for any sin, like the ones I just listed. But my point was this. Without the New Covenant... You are still back under the old covenant, and there are rules to follow. And the rules, like I say, on many occasions would result in capital punishments. So for us, verse 7, we have right now an atonement. Verse 7, Christ has died for our sins. And the Bible says he's able to save anyone that comes under God by him, seeing ever liveth to make intercession for us. What a great saviour we have. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And you ask that to a typical Jew, they can't answer you. They have no lamb. They have no sacrificial system. They are very much under the old covenant, and they can't keep the old covenant. It's impossible. They are just as lost as Muslims. They're just as lost as Catholics. 
8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And yes, he will. He will provide himself a burnt offering, going back to salvation being a supernatural act. Your salvation is supernatural. Your salvation is a free gift. You never get tired of hearing that, do you? It's a free gift. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. You don't need a priest. You don't need a vicar. You don't need someone to help you concerning your salvation. It's being done for you. My son, God, Elohim, Jehovah, a term my friends from last month wouldn't dare address the Lord by, and I understand that. They call him Adonai. They never call him Elohim. They never call him Yahweh. They never call him Jehovah. God will provide himself a lamb, Jesus Christ, for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. They are still heading up to a spot like this, maybe raining like it is now, to prepare a sacrifice. Going back one more time to the sacrifice that Abraham was being called to do. Yes, Abraham, I believe, would have put his son to death. Yes, I believe, in the back of Abraham's mind, he knew that Jehovah could and probably would resurrect Isaac because he'd already promised that Isaac would be this messianic line. Jehovah doesn't change his mind. Jehovah doesn't lie. At the same time, Isaac is now aware as to what is going on, is apprehensive, which is kind of natural, and yet doesn't try to back out like Jesus Christ. He wouldn't back out. He would say to his father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He would be uh, stumbling in uh, Gethsemane. He would be uh, sweating blood. He knew that death awaited him. He wasn't fearful of dying. He wasn't fearful of being put on a cross naked for the world to see. That wasn't a problem for him. He was more concerned about being separated temporarily from his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the first time in his life, he would not only see sin, he would be sin. He would become a sin offering. That's what he was sweating about. Nine. And it came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. You can't miss the imagery, can you? Wood is a picture of the cross. God the Father puts God the Son on the cross. I have power to lay my life down and take it up again. You couldn't force the Lord's hand to do anything. He would say that their time was always ready, John chapter 7, but my time isn't. He knew that from his conception to his crucifixion, he walked a very fine line. He was sent to do the will of his father, going back to sacrifice, going back to obedience. Look at Abraham, about to offer up his only son. And of course, Ishmael was his firstborn, you understand, but in the context of the messianic line. And he would have done it. Jesus Christ comes, lays his life down for his father and did just that. Ask yourself the question one more time. What have you given up for Jesus? What have you given up for Jehovah? I'm not saying this to shake your faith. I'm not saying this to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm simply begging the question. What have I given up to follow Jesus Christ? What have I given up to follow Jehovah? How would I have handled Genesis 22 if I had a son or a daughter? How would you handle it if you have a son or a daughter? Could you do it? 
Could you sacrifice your children for Jehovah? Could you do it? Could you sacrifice your family or your home or your cars or your good life for Jehovah? Could you do it? People say they have faith, and maybe you do. And we say by our faith we know that, and at the judgment seat of Christ, which again I will look at this coming Sunday, we know that we are judged for our service, not salvation after we are saved, but how real is our faith? How precious is our faith? Are we, are we really walking with the Savior? Are we really honoring him, obeying him? If you love me, keep my commandments. And Abraham and Isaac were flawless. Ten, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He would have done it. Isaac would have allowed him to do it because Isaac loved Abraham. Abraham loved Isaac. But more importantly, Abraham loved Jehovah. Isaac loved Jehovah. That's what this is all about. One's love for Almighty God. If you love me, keep my commandments. Very difficult, I know. It's very difficult to pick up your cross every day. It's very difficult to live a crucified life. It's very difficult to put yourself down like the old man and walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very, very difficult. And that's what the judgment seat of Christ, again, is all about. The beamer seats of the Lord. How did you live once you got saved? What were your motives? What motivated you to do what you did? I made the uh, statement last Sunday that Patrick and I believe that over the last 15 years, we've given out around one million gospel tracts. And you may say, that's wonderful, James. But the question I put down uh, on tape last Sunday, and I will put it down again now on camera, was this. What was the motivation for that? What motivated me? What motivated Patrick to do that? We don't know what the motivation was, and neither do you, concerning how you serve the Lord. In my mind, I believe it was legitimate, it was authentic. In my mind, I believe it was to get people saved. But perhaps that was partly done to alleviate a bad conscience. Perhaps that was partly done due to laziness, idleness. Perhaps it was done to shame this person or that person. Who knows? That's what the judgment of Christ, again, is all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if it's gold, if it's silver, praise the Lord, but if it's stubble, if it's wood, if it's hay, not so good. Such commodities are going to be weighed, and if it's gold, it will uh, survive the burning. If it's silver, it will survive the burning, but if it's wood, hay, stubble, it probably won't. And that's why I think for most of us, and I can't speak for everyone, but for most of us, for most Bible believers living in the West, especially over the last 25, 30 years, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, we may get a crown or two. I'd be amazed if we get five. But here's another thought. It could just be, and this came to me a little while ago as I was trying to uh, plan Second Corinthians, that let's say you've been saved 35 years. And let's say for the first 10, 15, 20 years, you walked very closely with the Lord. You were as close to him as you are to your husband or wife, mother or father, son or daughter, and you really did pay a price to follow the Lamb, okay? And you gave up a lot to follow him. You got people saved. 
And then the next 10, 15 years wasn't so good. You started to backslide. Maybe you worked very closely with your wife. Or maybe you worked very closely with your husband. Or maybe you worked very closely with your brother or sister. Or maybe you worked very closely with your siblings, for example. And they motivated you, and you motivated them. And then all of a sudden, somebody dropped out. Somebody died. Somebody changed their mind. Somebody disappeared, shall we say. And therefore, for the next 10, 15 years, you backslide. You start to live for yourself. You start to become lazy, complacent, indifferent. And then you die. So 35 years, you've been saved. The first 20 years, wonderful. But the last 15, not so wonderful. And I wonder if this is how it's going to play out. Judgment seat of Christ. In the presence of our blessed Savior. And he says this. He says, welcome to heaven. And he calls you by your first name. John, uh, John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He knows your name and you know his name. In fact, that's how you got saved. You got saved by calling. You got saved by believing on a person's name. So once you know his name, he knows your name, okay? But here's how it's going to play out, I think. This is, just, this is just a theory, so don't quote me. I think, I wonder if it's going to play out like this. Judgment to Christ. Jesus says this. He says, you've been saved 35 years. The first 20 years were wonderful. You walked very closely with me, and you paid a huge price to follow me. You got people saved, or you tried to get people saved. You made a difference. You prayed for sinners to get saved. You prayed for sinners who got saved. You prayed for those that were trying to get people saved. You were standing with frontline ministries. But the last 15 years of your life weren't so good. You did this, you did that, and yes, you can go back into uh, your old nature. You can easily resurrect the old man. Don't think you can't. One more time. O wretched man that I am. Romans chapter 7. That, uh, that which I don't want to do, I do. And what I want to do, I cannot do. Romans chapter 7. Paul is speaking about himself in the present tense. Not in the past tense. And the greatest book on the two natures of the believer has got to be David Brainard's Diary and Life. Get it and read it. And this is what the Lord will say, I think. He will say this, that based on the first 20 years of walking very closely with me, I will ignore the last 15 years. In other words, I will look at your entire life and based on your service, not salvation, this isn't salvation, okay? this isn't about works resulting in everlasting life, that's a heresy. This is based on service. This is based on crowns. This is based on New Jerusalem. Okay? Don't misunderstand me. Jesus will say this. This is what I think. This is just a theory. Take it or leave it. <laughs> just a theory. But I think he will say this, that based on the first 20 years of walking with me, serving me, sacrificing, there's my word again for this message, sacrifice, due to the sacrifice that you paid, I will overlook the last 15 years of dryness, indifference, laziness, and I won't take the crowns from you. You had three that you earned based on the early part of your salvation, but because I'm a good saviour, and he very much is, I love you so much, and he absolutely does, I won't allow you to forfeit those three crowns. That's what I think may happen based on the first 20 years of a person's life. But most people, most Christians, and I speak from experience now, that I know don't put themselves out don't buy gospel tracts. 
don't stand on street corners, are not trying to make a difference for eternity. It's always been said by others, and I will say it now very quickly, that it seems to be the tiny minority who do the most. Any church, any domination, if you do a quick uh, census, if you do a quick poll, if you do a quick survey, it always comes back, it's the same old gang, same old crowd. A tiny minority who keep the thing up and running. A tiny minority who make it work. The majority, like the 95%, just go through the motions. They turn up once a week, twice a week, three times a week, but they won't do any more. They don't pray outside of church. They don't fast or intercede outside of church. They don't stand with that church financially or a ministry or a minister, if you will. They take. They never give. And I think, based on my understanding of Scripture, based on the Lord's love for those that are saved, when it comes to their entire life as a saved person, it could just be that he overlooks their uh, failures. I may be wrong, and yes, I know about the talents, I know about the servants who had a talent and lost, I know all about that, but I'm speaking about the judgment of Christ, I'm speaking about the church, I'm speaking about someone who started off really strong, a man or woman, and had 20 years under his or her belt, and then started to drop off for all sorts of reasons. And the Lord says, well, I won't punish you for that. Of course, I'm disappointed. Of course, I wanted to be able to welcome you with even wider arms. But because of your choice to do what you did, I would have to restrain from being overly uh, welcoming of you. But at the same time, based on my love for you, I won't punish you. I will allow you to attain those crowns. And that's one of the reasons why there is crying in heaven, people crying over their, not only sin, but over the great love that the Savior shows us. He could just wipe us all out, but he won't do that if you belong to him. And yes, he will chastise you. Yes, he will punish you if you become a perpetual uh, backslider like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or like the sin unto death or like Ananias and Sapphira, but when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, when it comes to length of service, just based on my uh, hypothesis, it could just be that he will just blow you away based on his mercy, based on his love. Ten again, and I'll move on. And Abraham, picture of God the Father, stretched forth his hand. You can't miss the imagery. Almighty God was responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and took the knife to slay his son. Christ will be pierced with a sword. 11, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I, angel of the Lord, Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, angel of the Lord, New Testament, Jesus Christ. If I let me correct myself. Angel of the Lord, back in... Uh, the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Angel of the Lord, New Testament, is the Holy Spirit. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. I'm here, Lord. I haven't gone anywhere. You gave me uh, a task. You told me to do this. You expected me to leave early in the morning, take some servants with me, take my son with me, 
head up to a spot like the open air pulpits to sacrifice my son. And that's just what he did. And Isaac became aware as to what was about to take place, like he is going to be the sacrificial lamb, doesn't start to struggle, doesn't say to Abraham, let's call it a day, Dad, this is too much to ask. No, he goes along with his father's desire. Also a great picture of submission. A great picture of son in submission to the father. Again, Jesus Christ in submission to God the Father. You can't miss it, can you? 12, and he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Do you fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you fear him? Paul says that we must all appear before the judgment seats of the Lord. He says it is a terror of the Lord. And somebody uh, made the statement to one of my reference Bibles that the uh, meaning of the term, the terror of the Lord, is in reference to the fires all around that are being uh, poured out on people's works. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I think it's quite natural to be fearful when it comes to the judgment seats of the Lord. I think for those of us which uh, know the Lord, for those of us which are saved, for those of us which know what it's like to still live in this cursed world, in our cursed bodies, and the decisions that we've taken, like sins of omission, like sins of commission, that's right, sins of omission and sins of commission are going to have to be dealt with at the judgment seats of the Lord, and that's why it's so imperative to confess your sins to him. John chapter 1, like every day, to stay in fellowship with him. Because if you don't confess your sins to him, and you arrive at the judgment seat, and of course you will, 10 out of 10 of us are going to have to go to such a place. If you don't confess your sins to him, like here and now, whilst you can, you'll have to give an account of yourself and your sins at the judgment seat. Not based on your salvation, one more time, but based on your service. And many people, according to uh, 1 John chapter 2, are going to arrive almost naked. In fact, uh, John speaks about this over in Revelation. A picture of somebody arriving at the judgment seat, ill-prepared, unrepentant, never got right with the Lord, still saved, of course, by the grace of God, but just became indifferent. Got caught up with the name it and claim it brigade, got caught up with this brigade or that brigade, became self-righteous, started to look down on people's uh, activities. In fact, I can never forget a well-known street preacher, I shan't name him, who would go out onto the streets regularly, would call on sinners to repent, was quite a larger-than-life character, and for some years made a difference, I think, anyway. And then down the line... Unfortunately, he got caught up with this Calvinist guy, a hyper-Calvinist. And I shan't name these people because it's not necessary, but he got caught up with this Calvinist chap, hyper-Calvinist, and in essence, he destroyed this street preacher, just destroyed him, knocked him out of service altogether. And the last I heard of this street preacher was that he's now living on this guy's compound. 
like the hired help, like digging holes, like building extensions. What a tragic loss of a street preacher. We so need, we so desperately need street preachers. We've got many collars, we've got many priests, we've got many vicars, we've got many theologians, we've got many pastors, far too many, of course, for my liking, but we haven't got enough street preachers. We haven't got enough evangelists. We haven't got enough real men of God. And this chap who I met, I know him personally, I'm not just speaking off the top of my head, was a, a, a larger-than-life character. He was a larger-than-life character. Some of his theology was a little off. Okay, fair enough. Maybe some of my theology is a little off. Maybe some of your theology is a little off. None of us are perfect. But when it came to street work, when it came to addressing people, when it came to challenging people, he was good. He was very good, and yet overnight knocked out of service based on the wicked tulip, which incidentally is dismantled, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which I may get to this Sunday, and yet most uh, Calvinists don't want to accept that. Most Calvinists hate the idea that Christ died for the, for the whole world. They hate the idea that Christ died for everyone. They say that he didn't die for the goats, he died just for the sheep. And they completely overlook the fact that he died for a whole crowd, 2 Peter 2, 1, that would deny him. 2 Peter 2, 1, he died for those that would deny him. But the angel of the Lord, 11 and 12, steps in at the 11th hour and says, hold it, hold it. I see what you are about to do. I can see that you're on the cusp of sacrificing your son, thine only son, verse 12, from me. Hold it, put the brakes on. Because he would have done it. I am convinced of that. 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Horn, ram, horns. Now, permit me to perhaps stretch just a little. Christ will crush the head of Satan shortly. Romans 16. Christ would bruise Satan on the cross, but not completely. Satan still goes around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour whom he will. He's still very busy. Last night, just about to go to sleep, the internal house alarm goes off. Very loud. That slightly uh, caught me off guard. Two o'clock in the morning, alarm goes off at the back of my house. I get up this morning, I get everything ready to do this message. It starts to rain. I go to a backup location. I got a group of kids out on some school excursion. I've never seen kids at that spot before, ever. Not just one group of kids, but two groups of kids. <laughs> on top of that, I got flies at this backup location trying to eat me. I come up here and I start the message and I got the wrong battery in the camera, the backup battery, which if I'm fortunate, gives me 20 minutes. I just stop, go back to my main battery and get it reset up. Just small things which most people wouldn't even think about, but you put those things together, they become big things and they stop you from doing what you want to do. And yes, the devil, I think, is able to control the elements. He was able to uh, cause an almost storm on uh, the River Galilee. And the apostles had to wake Christ up to rebuke the devil in a storm. 
Something simple like an alarm, late at night or early in the morning. Something simple like rain. Something simple, uh, something simple like a school excursion. Something simple like uh, insects or weather in general can cause you to lose your focus, can cause you to say, you know what, I'll leave it today and just stay at home and do nothing. Not that is what I would do, but it could result in that. And here I am, just into, or just under one hour, and the sun's starting to come out. So you see, perseverance has paid off. Just an hour ago, it was looking doubtful that I could get to the open-air pulpit, based on the weather, based on distractions, based on lack of sleep, like four hours sleep. But you know me, if I start something, I, I try to push on. But I see a ram, verse 13. I see horns, verse 13. And I think this, I think 13... Yes, 13 is synonymous with witchcraft. 13 is synonymous with the devil. Friday the 13th, 666. And I see, without stretching it too much, an account here of Abraham finding a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And I think of the term from Daniel, how the Antichrist has horns. And I think that what we are partially getting a glimpse of, going back to my hypothesis from uh, verse 4, how Abraham saw the Lord's day and rejoiced, so on and so forth. And I think what Abraham is about to do is a picture of Christ ultimately destroying the, uh, the Antichrist, Revelation 20. But the latter part of 13, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son, in the place of his son. So on this occasion, Jehovah steps in at the 11th hour and says to Abraham, that's enough. We've tried you, being the Trinity, the Trinity of the Lord. We've tried you, we've tested you, Corinthians uh, 10, 13. We haven't pushed you beyond what you can bear, and we are happy, we are content that you've met the mark or that you've succeeded. But had such a trial been put to, say, David or Josiah or Solomon, I'm not sure the outcome would have been Quite, uh, quite so clear. I think perhaps David would have failed. David was uh, very much, uh, was very close to Absalom, Absalom. And he was weeping, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, would to God I die for you. Slight abbreviation, forgive me, but Absalom, a wicked son. Absalom, a carnal son. Absalom, a disgrace of a son. And yet David thought the world of him. And uh, it was Joab, I think, who would say to David that had they all died that day, he would have been happier if it had meant the survival of Absalom. And David's chief of staff would have to clip his, uh, clip his wings and say, get out into the gate, David. You are a disgrace. You are a disgrace to the throne of David. You are a disgrace to the children of Israel. And David took the rebuke, which is quite remarkable because he was the king of Israel which suggests that if you get rebuked, if I get rebuked, take it. None of us are above reproach. So 13, the imagery is very clear. Abraham, picture of God the Father. Isaac, picture of God the Son. About to sacrifice for the greater good of others. Jehovah steps in, stops Abraham. Isaac uh, is released from the cross and goes back probably to his home, rejoicing with his father. And yet, fast forward to 
Calvary, Jehovah doesn't spare Jesus. Jesus doesn't expect to be spared. Jesus would agree to come into uh, the world. Jesus Christ would uh, agree that one of the uh, members of the Godhead would have to sacrifice themselves for our sins. Had Jesus Christ, had our Lord Jesus Christ not agreed to die for the sins of the world, they wouldn't have made the world. The Godhead would not have created the world if Christ wasn't prepared to come and die for the sins of the world. I mean, what sort of God would he be if he made the world and allowed sin to come into the world and then said to the Son and the, and the Spirit, of course, they are all one, three members, one God, let's just sit back and leave it. Let's just let it burn itself out. What sort of God would that be? That's not what happened. God creates the world, knowing that sin would come into the world, and knowing that someone would have to come into the world to take care of the sin problem. And Jesus Christ steps forward and says, I'll be the person that comes into the world, and I will die for the sins of the world. But had that not been agreed, pre the creation of the world, they wouldn't have created the world. I'm convinced of that. 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. You think of that scripture from Ezekiel 48, Ezekiel 48, 35. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. It shall be seen. The Lord is there. You will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord is there. The Lord has seen. So much, so much going on in just, what, 14 verses. And yet, if you don't read the scripture, if you don't spend much time in the scripture, you miss out. 15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abram out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies or the gate of his enemies, excuse me. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast, thou hast obeyed my voice. Do you love me? Keep my commandments. Going back to how solid, how, how uh, secure, or how real <coughs> is our faith. You say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are there any works? Are you a changed person? And yet even that doesn't prove you are saved. Go back to the witnesses. Go back to the Mormons. Go back to the Catholics. They all claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, if you drill in to what they believe, if you read their publications, if you visit their services, if you speak to such people, and I have done, they don't believe in the blood. They don't rejoice in the blood of Christ. They don't believe you're saved by trusting in the blood of Christ. 16, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. And when he swears by himself, you better listen. 
For because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. But could you do that? Could you meet this test? Could you succeed in this trial? Could you give up your son or your daughter? Could you give up your husband or your wife? Could you give up your life, your money, your house, your car? I mean, could you give up anything for the Lord? I'm not saying you should. I'm just asking the question, could you? I'm just begging the question, could you come anywhere near this? Thine only son, and yet Ishmael, like I say, was the firstborn, but wasn't chosen for service, wasn't allowed to be a part of the Messianic movement, which would bring forth the Messiah. Isaac, of course, was chosen for such, that in blessing, I will bless thee, going back to the judgment seat of Christ, going back to how we live after we are saved, what we do after we are saved. Do we take a stand on the street? Do we speak to associates? Do we speak to people that we come into contact with? Do we tell people that they must repent? Do we level with people? If we do, we are blessed, judgment seats of Christ. If we don't, we risk being chastised at the judgment seat of Christ. And yet, at the same time, it may just be based on Christ's goodness, mercy, and his love. He may overlook many of our discretions. Let's hope so. And in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. And he did. In fact, I said to these Jewish chaps in Cambridge that one of the great blessings, one of the great proofs that Jehovah is Jehovah would be the Jews. They've survived everything that the devil has thrown at them. And as a sand which is upon the seashore. As of now, you've got over six million Jews living in Israel. You've got maybe two, three million living elsewhere around the world. Quite remarkable, seeing as Hitler's goal was to kill back in 1933 to 45, 12 million. I think there were 12 million Jews living on the earth over 75 years ago, and the goal had been to kill them all. And yet look what happens when a society starts to kill Jews. Look at Russia. Look at Stalin. He starts off by killing his doctors. His doctors are Jews. Great doctors, very bright, brilliant when it came to medicine, and yet Stalin was paranoid. And he starts to persecute his Jewish doctors. He starts to kill his Jewish doctors, and the country goes to pot. He starts to kill his... Uh, Senior generals, some are Jewish. He thinks there's a plot going on. He's paranoid that the Jews are plotting to take over his kingdom. Operation Barbarossa is launched. Germany sends a million men into Russia. Should have been a walk in the park, which is what Napoleon thought. And yet, what the Germans weren't expecting uh, was the coldest winter in over 100 years, like Napoleon found to his horror. And you know what happened, of course. The Germans get to the gates of uh, Moscow and they can't go any further because the uh, wind has kicked in. But my point is this. Stalin had killed many Jewish doctors, many Jewish generals, many Jewish uh, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, great brains, and he paid a price for it, or his country paid a price for it. You start to take out the Jews. What have you got? Some third-world country here the blessing is given to Abraham and vicariously, 
and vicariously the children of Israel. Spiritualize that to the judgment seat of Christ and you see what can be offered to those of us which put ourselves out, those of us which sacrifice something to follow the Savior. 18, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Picturing the Messiah, of course, but not just the Messiah, picturing Isaac, picturing Jacob, picturing the subsequent patriarchs. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. So he's given a task. He's given a challenge. He's asked to do something which most of us couldn't do. He was prepared. He would have gone through with the calling. He would have done what was expected of him. Because one more time, in his mind, he knew that God could and probably would resurrect Isaac at the same time. He probably thought that the Lord could or perhaps would intervene and stop this uh, incident from taking place, which, of course, is what would happen. Verse 11 and verse 12. But going back to verse 4, going back to what I believe he saw. Abraham, your father, saw this day, rejoiced, and was glad to see it. Before Abraham was, I am. And I think Abraham got a glimpse of a far greater incident which was about to take place. And of course, such would concern our salvation.